Open your Bibles to Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Please open your Bibles to John 21. Well, we're down to the last couple messages in John's Gospel. Kind of a uh, bittersweet end. It's been uh, a joyous occasion the last two and a half years. And I trust you've all grown in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Good. Our focus this morning will be verses 15 to 17. Now, as you recall... The disciples having fled during the time of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, Peter having denied Jesus three times, witnessed his resurrection in Jerusalem. They were in that upper room when Jesus appeared to them as the doors were locked, for they were hid away in fear. He appeared to them again in Jerusalem. And he had instructed them to go north to Galilee, for he would meet them there. So they traveled north, and seven of them went fishing. They went night fishing. This is what they did for a living. This is what they were good at. This is what they were experts at. And they failed miserably. They caught nothing. Jesus, standing on the seashore of Galilee, calls out to them. He tells them to throw the net on the right side of the boat, and they did it for a great catch. So much so that they couldn't even pull it in. They drag it to shore finally. It's 153 fish. Peter, prior to them dragging the net, jumped out of the boat, swam to shore, and there he was, standing before the Lord. And Jesus had prepared them breakfast. The creator of the universe prepared them breakfast. And here we are in verse 15. So, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. 
He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Heavenly Father, we ask you now for more grace, grace upon grace, to anoint and enable me to clearly communicate your divine truth to your people here this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll break the proud to their bitter end. I pray that you'll strengthen the feeble this morning. And I ask, Lord, that you would grant sight to the spiritually blind, especially those that have been attending church most of their lives, and yet they're dead. And they remain in their sin and transgressions, that they would be given life this morning, spiritual life, that you'd save their soul. And may your dear church be built up for the glory and the namesake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So here now we enter into the epilogue of John's gospel. Now, the logical conclusion to this gospel would seem to be chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Take a look. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but... These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. But if that's all we had, if all we had were John's gospel, ending here at chapter 20, we would figure Peter to have faded out of the scene. First, he denies the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he flees at the cross. After the Lord's resurrection from the grave, we know that John believed, but Peter, he only wondered. And if Peter is to be the great leader of this apostolic group, as Jesus said he would be, the very one who holds the keys to the kingdom and would unlock the Gentile world with the gospel, now what? It would seem to be a kind of hopeless situation if the story ended at chapter 20. Which would leave us thinking, what about Peter? So, chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, answer that for us. And John goes on now to tell one more story. One more vignette. Decades after the fact. But why? And the answer is this, beloved. Because failing Jesus Christ is not failure that is beyond the reach of his restoring grace. Again, failing Jesus Christ is not failure that is beyond the reach of his restoring grace. And the text that holds our attention this morning is the restoration of a failed, a miserably failed man of God. And here we witness Jesus restoring Peter to a place of leadership among the other apostles. Title of the message, Peter Examined and Reinstated. 
Now, if we were to make a judgment on the life of the apostles simply from the earthly ministry side of the Lord Jesus prior to the cross and perhaps just a a, a view of Peter after the cross, uh, we would, on the surface, look at someone, say, such as Judas, as an, an apparent success story. And we would look at Peter as a groveling failure. Judas was a, a, sec, a success in ways that impress the world. He was successful both financially and politically. He cleverly arranged somehow, some way, to control the money of the apostolic band. He was the treasurer. He was the only one that had a title out of the twelve. And he skillfully manipulated the political forces to accomplish his goal. Peter was a failure in ways that we as human beings most dread. He was impotent in crisis situations, powerless. He was socially inept. You ever been in a social setting with someone that has no social skills? It's rather embarrassing, yeah? At the arrest of Jesus, he collapsed, a a hapless, blustering coward. And in the most critical situations of his life with Jesus, the confession on uh, Caesarea Philippi, where he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus transfigured before his very eyes from a human form to glorified form, he said in those two places the most embarrassingly inappropriate things that we could imagine. He was not likely the companion that we would want alongside of us in time of danger. On the surface now we're talking. He was not the kind of person we would feel comfortable with in in that social setting. But time, as you know, has reversed our judgments of these two men. Judas is now a byword for betrayal. Peter is one of the most honored names in the church, one of the most honored names in the world. Judas, a villain, Peter, a saint, child of God, a powerful apostle. But yet the world continues to chase after the successes of a Judas. Financial wealth, political power, and to defend itself against the failures of a Peter. Impotence and ineptness. So, beloved, the key to understanding what's about to transpire is to recognize the inner feelings of this man, Peter, at at this point in time, on this Galilean seashore. While Peter was the first to make the the greatest, actually, confession in church history, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he also denied Christ three times. just after his arrest, this mighty man crumbled, broken. And in the wake of his denial, back at Caiaphas' porch, courtyard, 
As Jesus was being escorted from that inner chamber, he caught eyes with Peter. Luke twenty two sixty says, immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Imagine that. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went away and he wept bitterly. A broken man. The meeting of their eyes was one of the most painful in history. I mean, imagine your very last words to the one you loved being words of denial and rejection. (laughs) With no ability to make it right. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly. And perhaps you know what it's like this morning to weep over your sin. Perhaps you know what it's like to weep over broken communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Pushing him away. Ignoring him. Making vows in the midst of a jam and never carrying out those vows. Moving on just to break them. Or perhaps fearing man so much so that you too have denied a personal relationship, or knowing this glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter was a failure as a disciple in his mind. All hope was gone at this point. He had forfeited everything, discipleship, apostleship, never able to forget the awful thing that he had done. I mean, had he disqualified himself from service? We know the answer to that, but let's go back to this Galilean seashore this morning standing wet, soaked before the Lord Jesus Christ. Could he ever be what he once was? Could he ever be the man that holds the keys to the kingdom? Would his heart ever be able to experience true peace again? All of these thoughts are running through Peter's psyche, no doubt. This morning. This very morning in Galilee. Now, having traveled some 80 miles north from Jerusalem, as instructed by the Lord, Peter, as I said, or if you've been with us, you know, along with six other disciples, they went fishing all to no avail. They caught nothing. But that trip, beloved, was ordained failure. Did you get that? Ordained failure. Providential preparation for the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ in the lives of these men. And very lovingly, if if you recall, Jesus stands on the seashore and he cries out, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? He didn't cry out, Hey, deserters, traitors, former disciples, defectors no he says little children which is to say boys lads you have no food do you he tells them to throw the net over the starboard starboard side of the boat for a great catch where their natural inadequacy was absolutely devoured by his bountiful supernatural sufficiency 
And this enormous, catch, this enormous catch was a sign to these disciples that the Lord Jesus Christ was at work. There they were, unable to haul in the overflowing net of fish. And at that point, as you recall, John recognizes the Lord. He said, it's the Lord. Why? Because of the overwhelming blessing through the command. John recognizes, so Peter clothes himself, having been stripped down for work, and he jumps overboard, he swims to shore, and there stands Peter, dripping wet, doubting his own, his own fidelity. Confused. Wondering about his own ability to walk with Jesus. Let alone minister to others. Now, the Lord had already met with Peter privately back in Jerusalem. Luke 24:33 After revealing himself to those two men to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember? They came back. They got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them saying, "The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon." 1 Corinthians 15 verse 5 reports that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now, interestingly enough, that private meeting was just that. It's private. We know nothing about it. Not one detail is provided for us with regard to what Jesus said to the Peter. I'd love to know. I mean, it was probably so personal, intimate, and holy that the Lord desired to keep it that way. And it was there in private that the Lord dealt with Peter's sins. Restoring him, don't miss this, to personal discipleship. Restoring him privately to personal discipleship. First, he restored Peter as a disciple privately. Secondly, he will restore Peter publicly as an apostle, which we're about to witness. Privately as a disciple, publicly as an apostle. It's one thing to be restored privately, it's quite another to be restored publicly. Amen? I mean, that's what's about to take place here. Peter has sinned publicly, therefore needed to confess and be restored publicly. You see, sin must be dealt with only to the extent for which it is known. Sin must be dealt with only to the extent for which it is known. Private sins should be confessed privately. Public sins in public. Therefore, we have the prescribed steps of church discipline as per the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If your brother sins against you, you go to him what? One-on-one. If he repents, you let it be. No one else needs to know. If they refuse to repent, bring two or three more. If they refuse to repent, you bring it before the church. If they refuse to repent, you cast them out and you treat them as an unbeliever. We've done that twice here in this church. One has been restored, the other's in the process of being restored. Praise be to God. Now, think about this. What must have been going on in the mind of the other disciples at this point with regard to Peter? 
Peter's denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Although no one said anything out loud about it, we can expect that they were all thinking about it. He was the only one that publicly denied the Lord as he did. Yes, they all scattered. Peter denied emphatically, I do not know him. Cursing and swearing, I do not know him. Like that. What would become of Peter? All that he was, all that he was promised to be. Now what? What about the status of Peter in the eyes of these other disciples? So this account of restoration, notice it's something public. This is public. This is for those other men to see. So what they're going to witness is this. Two points of focus outlined for in your bulletin. Number one, they will, they will witness the Lord's examination of Peter. And they will also witness the Lord's reinstatement of Peter. Openly, clearly. First, let's look at the examination of Peter's heart. The examination of Peter's heart. Now, since Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus asked him three personal questions, followed by a threefold commission. This is what we witness in the text. It's going to be painful for Peter, no doubt about it. But nevertheless, next to being saved by the grace of Jesus Christ at Calvary, the greatest blessing in this man's life. Comes by way of brokenness, doesn't it? If you've never been broken... To the end, you're not saved. Sorry. If you haven't been brought to the end of yourself where you cry out to Christ with everything that you are, you don't know him. Full and complete dependency upon the only one that can save you. It's going to be painful. Once it takes place, Peter will be forever grateful that it happened. It It will not come devoid of pain. It never does. So here now, as they approach the shore, Jesus is there. Notice, having prepared for them breakfast over a charcoal fire. Now, what's interesting about this is that expression is used in only one other place in the New Testament, and it's John 18, 18. When Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ, he was standing next to a charcoal fire. Warming himself. So, although all of the disciples failed Jesus miserably, no doubt, it's Peter who's most specifically addressed here. Why? Why Peter? It's because of this. His failures were the most noticeable, seeing that he was so verbose. This is a very vocal apostle. Quick to speak. Mark 14, 29. Lord, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Mark 14, 31. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Which is to say, Lord, my love for you far exceeds the others. Now, although the spirit was willing with his brother, his flesh was what? Weak. And your flesh is weak, beloved. My flesh is weak. You do not want to attempt to walk with Jesus Christ in your flesh. You will crumble. 
His, his spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. Thus the reason he fell asleep when he should have been? Praying. Thus the reason he fled from the garden. Thus the reason he denies knowing Jesus three times. And the reason that he stayed clear of the cross. He wasn't there. So, having received breakfast now from the hand of the Lord, these seven disciples sit huddled around the fire. Now, remember back in verse 12 last time? It hints that there was very little conversation during this breakfast. Verse 12, look at it. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. In other words, something was going on there. This, this, the supernatural permeated everything this morning. Here's Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, glorified body. Yeah, they recognize him, they know it's him, but yet he doesn't look the same. It's different. We we don't know what a glorified body looks like. They're the only ones to experience it, so they're mesmerized, but they know it's him. They don't dare ask, so they're standoffish. They're kind of back here. Quiet. So after an awkwardly quiet breakfast, you've been in that situation, right? Maybe not at breakfast, but you're across the table from someone and you don't know one another very well, so those times of silence are very awkward. You've experienced that, amen? You know you have a really good close friend when those times aren't awkward, by the way. I have a friend I go to breakfast with every Monday almost, and we'll just sit there, we talk a while, and then there's just silence. But I don't feel uncomfortable because he's a very close friend of mine, so it's just whatever, that's fine. But here it's had to be awkward. Jesus breaks the silence. Notice, sub-point number one, Jesus examines the profession of Peter's love. Jesus examines the profession of Peter's love. Verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? You can imagine Peter's heart dropping to his stomach. And above that, above and beyond that, he addresses him as what? Simon. Simon. And this must have pained him even more deeply because this was no longer his name. His new name was what? Peter, given to him by who? Jesus. You are no longer Simon, but you are Peter the Rock. So the way the Lord addresses him intentionally calls into question his title, The Rock. You see, this is a reference to Peter being the same kind of sinner as everyone else depraved sons of Adam. That's what you are. That's what I am. We are depraved sons and daughters in Adam or of Adam. So although the question to the Lord here was motivated by love, it was designed to hurt Peter, and it did. The scalpel of the Lord now has been broken out, and Jesus has begun surgery on the heart of Simon Peter. Right here. Any single one of us, and this is a reminder, any single one of us that is here this morning, apart from God's grace, apart from his daily provision of grace, is no different than Peter. Amen? No different. You will deny the Lord just as quickly as Peter did, but by the grace of God. 
We're of the same seed, you see. We're the same kind of sinner as Peter. And apart from the Lord's protection and the Lord's keeping us, we would respond no differently than this broken apostle. Don't ever forget that. So, in the midst of temptation, we too must remember that we are just as feeble, weak, helpless. Thus, Jesus said what? Without me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing in this world, beloved. Nothing. I'm amazed at the people that I talk with, okay, who, like unbelievers or prideful believers, that they want to go the way of the world and they want to see how long they can go that way instead of receiving the glorious truth of Scripture. That's foolishness, beloved. Don't go that way. He's given us His Word. If you want to learn the hard way, it's there. You'll die. You'll die. We're weak, we're helpless, we can do nothing. Notice here, back to the text. Jesus asks him, he says, do you love me more than these? Now what does these refer to? It's been interpreted three different ways. We'll look at all three. Number one, it's been interpreted as, do you love me more than you love these disciples? Now that doesn't make sense. If you look at the whole of Scripture and how it fits together, especially or the theme of John's Gospel alone, it doesn't fit, so I think we can throw that one out. Do you love me more than you love these disciples? Throw it out. Number two, do you love me more than these nets, these fishing boats, this fishing tackle? In other words, do you love me more than your former occupation? That's a possible interpretation, but not probable. The most probable interpretation is this. Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Why is that probable? Because it refers back to Simon Peter's statement, I will not be offended by you, even if all of these are made to stumble, I will never be made to stumble. As a matter of fact, I, I, I will die with you. So openly, publicly with the other disciples there, Peter has to face that confession. Self-reliant, puffed up, self profession. Do you really love me more than these, Simon? You claim that you did, do you? So Peter had to face the facts of his actions about two weeks prior to this morning. Actions that didn't match his self-confident profession. Notice, of all the words that the Lord could have used here, he chooses the word love. He doesn't ask Peter or Simon, do you trust me more than these? Do you, or do you admire me more than these? Or Simon, do you fear me more than these? Simon, are you more committed to me than these? No. He asks, do you love me more 
than these. This is oftentimes what immature, zealous Christians will do. They'll begin to compare their own powers of commitment to others. Well, I quit my job so that I can go on to this, you know, 16-week Bible course. Really? Yep. How are you going to pay your rent? Well, I don't know. But I just know I'm committed to Jesus. See, the danger there is that their confidence is resting in the wrong place. It's my commitment to Jesus rather than his commitment to me, you see. Now, Jesus raises the question to determine whether or not Peter is still prepared to make such a self-reliant statement there publicly as he did in the past. And Peter's answer is, look, it's so revealing. Notice, yes, Lord, you know that I what? That I love you. What was the question again? What was the question? Do you love me more than these? To which Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter drops the comparative statement. He'll never, ever go there again. Never. So, the Lord has put on trial here the comparative profession of Peter's love. Comparing himself to others, Peter's love more than these. So, now, he's going to question the extent of Peter's love. Okay, still we're, we're still on the examination of Peter's heart. He, he moves now from uh, examining the, the, the comparative profession of Peter to the other disciples. Now he's going to, he's going to plumb the depths of, of Peter's love for Jesus. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now Jesus, Jesus now drops the words more than these and he simply says, do you love me? It's also, also what's interesting here, beloved. Jesus uses the agape word for love in verse 15 and 16. Most of you know this. In, in, in the earliest introduction to the Greek language for most, for most uh, Bible students comes through a study of the word love. And as most students are quick to point out, there are different words in the Bible for the different flavor, flavors of the word love. For instance, the word um, eros, it's an erotic type of love. And it simply refers to passionate, sensual love. And that word is not even used in the New Testament. In the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew text, you find it like in Proverbs, but you don't see it in the New Testament. The other word is phileo, phileo, which describes a caring friendship personal f- affection. It's, it's a kind of a, a second-tier kind of love. This second-level love of, of that's more emotional than it is devotional. Deep friendship. And the other is agape, which is the highest level of love in the Greek language. It's unconditional love. It's unchangeable love. It's an other-centered love. 
It's a consistent, devotional, above all others kind of love. And that's the word that Jesus uses in questions 1 and 2. Peter, do you love me with unconditional, unchanging, devoted love? Do you, Peter, love me with agape love? In both times, Peter's, Peter's response to the question of Jesus here is with the second kind or the second level of love, phileo. Do you agape me? Lord, you know that I phileo you. Now, Peter doesn't deny loving the Lord, no doubt. But at the same time, he settles with the second level of love, phileo. Why? Because he doesn't dare claim the highest form of love here. Since his life has shown such inconsistency to the Lord. Despite all my deficiencies, Lord, I do phileo. This is a love of friendship. I have this love of friendship for you. I can't say agape to you, Lord. Not after my failure. Not after this disgrace. So Peter's presumption was gone, wasn't it? All attempts at comparison with anybody else had been destroyed. So here now, after examining the bold profession or or, or the comparison of Peter's love to the other disciples, he moves on to the extent or the depth of Peter's love. And then he examines, notice now, the very existence of his love. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Now, the third time, Jesus compromises here and makes use of the word phileo. So he moves from that top-tier kind of love, agape, and he drops down to the second layer of love, phileo. Peter, do you even love me with a friendship level of love? Is this the way a friend treats a friend with curses and swearing denial, Simon? Now, Peter was hurt. Knowing that his actions couldn't even support the secondary level of love. Therefore, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you phileo me? Notice there's no longer a trace of self-reliance in any of Peter's answers. Amen? It's gone. Notice he's not talking about my commitment. He's not talking about my obedience or, or my sacrifice. Or like Christians today, they'll brag about my quiet time. I haven't missed a quiet time in 20 years. Reading my Bible every morning. Someone actually told me that once. Who, who Their life was so up and down with trusting in God or not trusting in God, and they would always boast in that. Brother, get over yourself. People brag about my service or my ministry or my ability actually to keep people on the straight and narrow. The focus is not Peter's commitment or abilities, is it? It's not even primarily his love. Now, is the focus on the verb here important, love? Focus on this verb important? 
Answer, yes. But more importantly than the verb itself is the object of that verb. Do you love me? So the object of this love is just as important, I'd say more important and significant as the act of love itself. You see, it's the proper object of our love, beloved, that sustains our motivation for serving him in the first place. We have nothing to boast about. Nothing. One pastor speaking to a group of pastors said this, quote, If our motivation for ministry is merely a love for Christ's people, it will not last. The work is too laborious. The criticism is too harsh. The response is too discouraging. And the appreciation is too small. And there's no doubt about it, as I interject here, if you're not called to it, if you're not commissioned for it, the ministry will devour you. That's why so many churches fold. I think so many guys try to get into ministry and they're not called to it. So 800 churches open in a year and, and 750 of them shut down or whatever the stats are, I don't know. Same pastor went on to say this, quote, it's not the great pay or professional perks that keeps a man in the ministry, to which I add, unless you're a televangelist in Los Angeles or down in the South with the toupee and the gold on your lapels and the green hanky and the blessed water from the Jordan that heals cancer. Those guys are in it for the money. They're hirelings. You make money there, but you go to hell with it, without it. (laughs) He continues, nor is it the compelling beauty of God's people because they're so perfectly sanctified. (laughs) The same pastor was asked by one of his interns after a difficult week. This intern noticed the difficulty in ministry. And he said, he asked, he goes, how do you endure all this? The complaining the backbiting, the lying, the pride, the complacency, and the lack of financial giving. How do you deal with it? To which this pastor called by the Lord answered, as only any true man of God that's called to the ministry can answer, it's worth everything to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's worth everything. Amen. It's because of him. Just as Jesus pointed Peter and the others to their failure and inadequacy through an unproductive night of doing what they know best, fishing. Now he strips Peter of all self-righteous, self-confident, and self-assured love for Jesus. To where Peter cries out, notice, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know. You know. So notice, on each of these three occasions, 
Peter's only recourse is to appeal to the one and only thing that any of us can plead for when we fail Jesus Christ. And that is his perfect, absolute knowledge of our hearts. If you're a fake, he knows it. If you profess with your mouth and that's it, he knows you better than you know yourself. If you're truly redeemed and you love the Lord and you desire to please him and you keep falling on your face, it's time to mature, get up and keep moving. Grow up. But he knows your heart. He said, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter clings to the omniscience of Jesus Christ. He clings to the all-knowingness of Jesus, his Savior. When all we can do is cry out and say, Oh Lord, forgive me for failing you once again. I'm grateful. I praise you that you, you can read my heart and you know that I love you. The emphasis is on the you know. For you know all things and I can only love you because you first loved me. So Peter's confidence is no longer rooted in his self-proclaimed, self-confident love for Jesus, is it? No. But rather, in the intimate omniscience of Jesus, he knows Peter. An intimate word. He knows you. You can't depend on your self-reliant love for him, amen? Amen. Spurgeon said it like this, quote, I do not approve of the man that says, I know I love Christ and I never have a doubt about it. Because we often have reason to doubt ourselves. A believer's strong faith is not as strong faith as in his own love for Christ, it's a strong faith in Christ's love to him, end quote. When you understand his love for you and what he did on Calvary for you, you will be driven to love him in return by grace. Otherwise, you'll be toiling in trying to gain favor in the sight of God by working yourself into favor with him. And you will fail every time. So this is what Peter says. You know... Verse 15, you know. Verse 16, you know. Verse 17, you know all things you know that I love you because you know me. Again, it's because you know me. Notice now, we move into the second point. Jesus affirms this love now three times. Here we now, here, here now we have the reinstatement from the Lord's heart. First was the examination of Peter's heart, and now is Peter's reinstatement from the Lord's heart. Three questions, three answers, followed up now by three expressions of reinstatement. Verse 15, then tend my lambs. Verse 16, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, tend my sheep. So, the Lord's object lesson to them has been made very clear. Whether you're fishing for food or you're fishing for men, without me, apart from me, you can do nothing. If he said that to these men, what does that mean for us? The same thing. 
This was something they no doubt had to learn. So Jesus used their failure to prepare, prepare them for ministry success. But yeah, they would all go on to die brutal deaths, with the exception of John. And didn't they put him in hot boiling oil? And he survived and then put him on an island for the rest of his life? Yep. That's successful ministry. God will not use a man greatly until he has broken him deeply, as Tozer used to say. God will not use a man greatly until he has broken him deeply. Same goes for you ladies. Man, woman, deeply. All self-sufficiency, all self-righteousness must be depleted from any and all in order to be faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't act like a Christian. One must become a Christian. By the grace of God, through regeneration, brokenness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, what does that mean? To come to Christ as a beggar who has nothing. All you can do is put your hand over your face and hold out your hand for alms. Poor in spirit. So through much pain, failure, and brokenness, Peter had to learn that the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ is in Christ alone, not Christ plus Peter's commitment. So Peter, the rock, now depleted of self, can now come alongside and tend to who? The little lambs. Those that are weak and frail, verse 15. Jesus said, tend my lambs. These are new converts, beloved. He's to feed them with sound doctrine. He's to teach them of the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's to nurture them. He's to nourish them. And you start out a little lamb or a babe in Christ on milk, don't you? You start them out on milk. Nurturing them along. Discipleship. Also, verse 16, he says, shepherd my sheep. He would also be able to minister now to those that are more established in the faith. Those more established sheep, leading them, guiding them, governing them. That's what shepherds do. Teaching them the duties and the responsibilities of a shepherd as ordained by God. That's why, you know, Christians who have a problem with church leadership, they have a problem with God. (laughs) Because shepherding the flock is ordained by God. You know, older sheep are often stubborn, unlike the babes, unlike the tender lambs. They're often stubborn and, unfortunately, oftentimes very unteachable. And why is that? Well... Many of them are steeped in tradition. Many of them have come, been groomed up through the church with very poor doctrine. So they remain unteachable. They, they think they know it all. You know, well, I've taken a couple classes in my time, buddy. And I've learned some stuff. So they think they, more, they know more than they know, when in reality they don't know what they don't know. For if they really knew what they claimed to know, they wouldn't be so much trouble, would they? 
Because instead they'd be humble. They'd be supportive instead of prideful and disruptive. So babes, very teachable. Many older ones are more stubborn. So here's Peter. He's going to be able to minister to the babes and he's also going to be able to minister to those stubborn ones because he himself was once stubborn, prideful, self-reliant. So there he is, able to minister. He's been there, proud, broken, and now he's in the process of being healed, isn't he? You see, Peter's going to know how to make use of the shepherd's crook. You ever seen a shepherd's crook? The top end? Curved, isn't it? You can reach out there and, and grab those little babes, those, litter, those little tender babes, and, and you're able to guide them and move them and direct them and redirect them. You're gentle with them. What about the stubborn sheep? You just flip it upside down. It's straight for a reason. And it's not just for walking. Right? With a, st- with a stubborn sheep, you poke or you give a little whack. You don't beat to death. You discipline the older sheep because they're stuck in their ways, just like this man was. So Peter, by the grace of the Lord, Jesus Christ is now qualified to shepherd his sheep. He's been greatly humbled. A humbling, by the way, that is the consequence, beloved, of failure. Don't forget that. This is ordained failure. When you fail, don't crawl into a hole. Praise God for it. Pray for wisdom in the process and get up and move on by grace. So Jesus says, feed my lambs. Peter, you are a fisher of men and a shepherd of my flock. This is a ministry of evangelism and a ministry of edification. Who are we going to save? Nobody. Some people say, we're here to save people. No, you're not. You're here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only he can save them. He's the only one that can save anybody. It's only the Holy Spirit. So... Preach the gospel freely. No one's going to be converted because of you or because of me, I'll tell you that. It's the Holy Spirit alone. And then when he converts them, it's the church's job to bring them up, to disciple them. We make disciples, amen? That's the Great Commission. We preach the gospel, make disciples. Only he can convert them. Only he can transform them. So don't get so down when people reject the gospel. People hate Jesus Christ, beloved. They hate him. They won't say it with their mouth, but they hate him. That's why they don't want him. Sitting here, when you sing songs and worship Jesus Christ, if you're not saved, this is the most miserable place to be. (laughs) Amen? Verse 17, he says, Tend my sheep. Here now, Peter would also be able to minister to those who are advanced sheep, advanced in maturity and humility. Not like that second group, or they're, they're older Christians, but they're stubborn. These are the ones who are very advanced in grace. In other words, their doctrine, their life matches their doctrine and their knowledge. They're humble. They're helpful. Greek scholar Kittle points out that some Greek manuscripts show a little suffix here that indicates 
These are my dear sheep or my precious ones. In other words, those furthest led and in, in closest communion to me, those mothers and fathers of the faith, those who've been walking with me for a long time and are that mature. Feed those with the meat of my word, Peter. Give them the meat. Feed, tend, shepherd. Who? Who's he to feed? Who's he to tend? Who's he to shepherd? Who? Jesus said, my sheep. These are not Peter's sheep. My sheep. That's why pastors need to remember, beware lest many of you become teachers, for you will receive a stricter judgment. If you make my message palatable, if you make it humorous, if you sit around and joke to get people to laugh and you don't teach the serious truth of my word, shame on you, you will be held with a greater judgment. That's why I'm not up here throwing out jokes, folks. Showing you skits, making you laugh. Although I'm a very funny guy. (laughs) Just ask my kids, my family. These are my sheep, he says. All believers are, are Christ's sheep. You are his, beloved. You're his sheep, you're his flock, you're his people, you're his church, and you are his beloved bride. Clothed in white. So, notice here. Imagine Peter, here he is, when he feels the least qualified. It's here that Jesus gives him the greatest commission. In his greatest failure, Jesus recommissions him, he reinstates him to the call. This was a special call to apostleship, capital A. There was one group in the first century called to that specific role of apostleship. There's specific men called to the pastoral ministry. Yes, men only, pastors, yes, according to the Bible. Men called to the pastoral ministry. Now, even though those are specific calls for the apostle, there's specific call for a pastor, the principle here is the same for all of us. For all of us. So, how true to life is this for us? When you're the most broken in your own sin, humbled to the core by your own inadequacy, it's then, as a recipient of God's grace, that you're enabled to speak to others, having been humbled, having been broken like Peter, and assist in shepherding the flock of God. Most ministry goes on out there, among you all, During the week. A great amount of ministry. So at the end of the day, it all comes back to the same essential question here. Do you love me? Jesus asked. Now, this, do you love me, is a prerequisite to any kind of restoration as a Christian, beloved. That's the question. Question for you. As a Christian, have you failed in marriage? You don't have to, just keep it inside. As a Christian, have you failed as a parent? Have you failed as a son? Have you failed as a daughter? Have you failed as an employee? I go to work and I steal time from my boss just like everyone else does. They don't even know I'm a Christian. Have you failed as a church member? All of us can say yes to one or more of those, I'm sure. 
But again, failing Jesus Christ is not failure that is beyond his restoring grace, beloved. Look at Peter. You're not beyond his restoring hand of grace in your life this morning. But remember this, one thing is set forth as a prerequisite for restoration. One question posed, posed here to establish the qualification for reinstatement. It is, do you love me? Notice it's a present tense question. Do you love me? Right now, right here, do you love me? And it's followed by a present tense commission. Tend. Feed. Notice also, Jesus does not question Peter about his past failures. Do you notice that? He's dealing now. Here and now with Peter. And why doesn't he bring up the past, beloved? Because on the cross, Jesus resolved all of Peter's sins. The blood of the lamb covers this man once and for all and forever. So what he asks him to, what he asks him here has to do with his mindset in the present. Do you love me? Again, the ultimate prerequisite for restoration. I'll leave you that question this morning. Do you love Jesus? You may answer, well, sure I do. And I'm glad to know that's all that's involved. That's the standard. I'm glad to know that. But that's not all that matters, beloved. It's not just, do you love Jesus? Love for Jesus is where restoration begins. And it comes with a very distinct call, a very clear demand here. Notice that. Don't forget that part. In other words, restoration here is not some kind of sentimentalism for Jesus. Because just everybody loves Jesus. Just go to the beach. Okay, you don't share the gospel by asking people, do you love Jesus? Yeah, man. (laughs) I sure do. I love him. He's cool. Everybody loves Jesus. Just about. It's not sappy, sentimental love. It is rather a renewed call to undeviating discipleship. undying, enduring discipleship. Jesus made it clear, John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We can say we love him all day, but beloved, we have to start with knowing his love for us. When we understand his undeviating love for us, that he laid his life down, our response by grace will be undeviating discipleship. Daily, by grace. We need his grace, beloved. Now, there are certain marks of love that every sheep, every true Christian, whether they're new babes or the most mature believers that we can all agree upon. There's eight of them to close. So, what does love for Jesus look like? Number one. Love longs to please and not offend the one that you love. Love longs to please and not offend the one that you love. Love for Christ doesn't test how far I can go before I offend him. Amen? 
How close can I get to the fire before I get burned? How, hey, people have asked this, Pastor, um, usually the guy, uh, how far can my girlfriend and I go before you know <laughs> we fall into sin? <laughs> what kind of question is that? Why place yourself in the reach of temptation, brother? Amen? Rather, you know, because he first loved us and we therefore love him, we wish to know how to stay away from the sin that will dishonor him in the first place. Tell me that. That's a mature, intelligent question. Second, love is living for the one you love. A true believer doesn't doesn't have to wake up in the morning, scratch their head, go, why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? And then live in a state of depression. If you're in Christ, you exist for the same reason that I do, beloved. And it is to love and glorify the one who loved me and laid down his life for me. That's why you exist in whatever you do. Whether you separate widgets in life or sweep streets in life, you're an accountant, a gas station attendant, and whatever, doctor, lawyer, preacher, you exist to glorify the one who bought you at a great price. Number three, love boasts in the one you love. Love for Jesus desires to speak of Jesus. Amen? Everyone talks about what they're passionate about. Whatever you're passionate about, that's what you spend most of your time talking about. You speak about the one you love most. You know, I love that about about my friends, my brothers and sisters, um, I had some folks over on Thanksgiving. We were watching football, right? And it's interesting that you can watch football and comment on the plays and enjoy the time together, but regardless of what we're doing, the conversation always goes back to what we love the most, and it's Jesus Christ. So throughout the afternoon, conversations of Christ come up. And that's just a joyous thing. Boast about the one you love. Fourth, love desires to grow relationally relationally with the one you love. You want to learn about. You want to read about. You want to study about the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have to study and read the Bible. You go get books that that great men of God have written about the Bible, you see. You don't want to have this mentality, it's just me and my Bible, that's all I need. No, wrong, because I could bring up some Old Testament names that you would never be able to know anything about unless you get outside resources of scholars who've studied those people, amen? And God has gifted to the church theologians and scholars of the past to specialize in an area about God. And we want to learn as much as we can. What did Paul say? I count all things loss that I might... Know him. Number five, love is active toward the one you love. This is looking for, pursuing after the object of one's affection. If it's really Jesus, you pursue him, you go after him. 
So true love and faith is active. If we say that we love God with our mouths and never act on what we profess, love must be dead. Amen? You can say you love Him all day. Love is dead. Faith is dead. Number six, love is known by the company it keeps. Here's a big one, beloved. Love is known by the company it keeps. Those who love Jesus Christ naturally bond with others who also love Jesus Christ. They love those who love the the Lord. It's not possible to say that you love Jesus and not love his people. The Bible says we're a liar if we say we love Jesus and don't love his people. I I was talking to my son a few weeks ago. I was saying, you know, if it weren't for Jesus Christ, I don't think there's one friend that I have that I would hang with. Because the main thing that we have in common is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love these men dearly, I could, and women. I couldn't think of hanging out with anyone other than this group. But if it weren't for the saving, saving redeeming love of Jesus Christ, I'd be hanging out with losers. Because outside of Christ, I'm a loser. I'd be drawn to loser activities. Therefore, I wouldn't be hanging with the people that I hang with now, you see. So love is known by the company it keeps. Number seven, love longs for intimacy with the one you love. Now, are, we, are, are any of us where we ought to be, beloved? No, I'm not. But we long to be there. It's like the psalmist who cried out in Psalm 42. He said, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. We're not there, but we're moving there. Number eight, love is unconquerable for the one you love. And more than that, beloved, this love is unconquerable from the one who loves you first. So true believers, you don't doubt God's love. You don't doubt the person and the work of Jesus Christ as you grow in grace. Nothing can drown out this love, beloved. This is an eternal love. This is redeeming love. So if we look at this list, I think we can all agree that we feel insufficient in most of these areas, if not all of them, amen? From time to time. But because of grace, we can persevere together. Because, again, it's because of his love for us. That's what we're talking about here. It's because of Christ's love for Peter that he was restored. He became the man that Christ called him to be because of the love of Christ, not because of Peter's commitment to Jesus. And we can cry out just like Peter, can't we? Lord, you know. You know all things. You know that I love you. Emphasis on you and you knowing that I love you. It's Christ. So Peter's failures, Peter's ineptness were forgiven. You get that? They were forgiven. And he became the Christ-confident preacher of that early first century. A mighty man of God. 
So I close with the words that we open with this morning, Psalm 32. Listen carefully. How blessed. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is what? Covered. Cloaked in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you're in Christ, you'll never stand having to pay for your sins. Christ paid it all. Christ paid it all. So it's all to Christ that we owe, amen? Because he first loved us. Let's stand and let's pray. Holy Father, we're forever grateful for the grace that has been granted to each one of us who are in Christ this morning. We thank you for the cross, and we thank you for your redeeming love that sent him there, for your sacrificial love that crucified him there, for your sovereign love and power that raised him from there, and for your descending grace that sustains us there. By the resident power and presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ in us, so that we, because of your love for us, can walk in a manner worthy of the calling, can live our lives according to your will, full of the Holy Spirit, can live our lives according to your will, that we be sanctified, to live your, our lives according to your will, that we be thankful, and to live our lives as grace provides that we may very well suffer for your name's sake. And I ask, Lord, on behalf of your people, that you would bless them richly, Lord, to be reminded of your love for them, that greater love is no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends, and that you call us friends, that we are sons of the Most High, daughters of the Most High, that you are our Lord, our Savior, and our elder brother, our Lord Jesus Christ, granting us access to the throne room of you, Almighty Father. We thank you. And I ask, Lord, that you would provide everyone here a a new level of understanding of this ever-abounding eternal grace provided to them through the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning. I also pray that you would provide each one of us with divine opportunities, divinely appointed times of opportunity to proclaim the gospel and the courage just to proclaim it. And also that we would see the fruit of the harvest of souls coming to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we always remember that we have nothing, nothing to do with receiving credit for it, but are living in response to what you have done on our behalf. For anyone here this morning, I pray, who doesn't know you, who are resistant towards you, who are running from you, who are complacent towards you. I pray, Lord, that you would break them like you did Peter, that you would break them like you have the rest of us. Bring them to the end of themselves. They would see that the only way is up, and the only way up is by your grace. 
Transform their lives today, we pray. And may your church be edified, enriched, empowered, and enlightened to the depth of your love for them, that we might love you in return as we ought. For your glory, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.